Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Crewland community, or good afternoon if you're joining us from overseas. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Crewland Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Broodcast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Kulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, any other agency of the U.S. government, or any entity with which our guests might be affiliated. So today we welcome back to the broadcast two guests who we had on almost exactly a year ago. In the early days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we invited Dr. Matthew Ford and Professor Andrew Hoskins onto the show to discuss their, uh, back then it was a forthcoming book called Radical War, Data, Attention and Control in the 21st Century, which was on the, on the cusp of publication and then uh, the invasion started. The book focused on how contemporary war is legitimized, planned, fought, experienced, remembered and forgotten in a continuous and connected way through digitally saturated fields of perception. And uh, the war was less than a month old and we had all spoken back then, but already it, it had become pretty clear that information and narrative promulgated through countless personal electronic devices and social media accounts, as well as you know existing uh, official media channels were gonna be key battlegrounds in the conflict. So as the invasion approaches its one year mark, we welcome back Dr. Ford and Professor Hoskins and we're expecting kind of a free-flowing discussion today. We're going to look at what elements of radical war they've seen on Ukraine's battlefields, how Russia, Ukraine, and the world at large have adapted or not adapted to leveraging the information domain and more. And I'll, I'll, I'll note that one comment from our previous discussion that's always uh, that has stayed with me since we talked was that I, th I think you phrased it as this was the most mediated war um, that we would probably see or at least had seen in a long, long time. And uh, I, I think that that has held true. Um, if anything, it's even, it might've been even more mediated than we all sort of expected. Um, so gentlemen, welcome back. I wanna get right to our points of discussion here. And, you know, to lead off, uh, you know, obviously there with your, you'd, you'd had a book that was sort of looking at the scene that was, that was then forthcoming. And we sort of talked about initial impressions after about three weeks of war. You know, so I think just jumping off here, what things that you thought you might see, you know, did you see what things that you expected didn't happen? What things uh, that you didn't expect have you seen manifested on there? So I'm going to jump in um, and uh, thank you. Thanks, Ian, for having us back. And it's a real pleasure to come back. Um, you guys were the first podcast we did um, about the book. And I think it's fair to say both Andrew and I were. Uh, I'm speaking for Andrew, but I'm pretty confident this is the case. Both Andrew and I are going, oh, God, there's a war on. And now we're going to pretty quickly find out how wrong we were about everything in radical war. And uh, not only that, we're going to be in front of um, the US Marine Corps. And we better get our act together because you folks are going to roast us alive if there's a, a bunch of guys who are talking about radical war and what the hell is radical war. And we're in a kinetic war and what the hell and uh, so we spent, I know I spent that first three weeks before the book came out and before we came onto this show, really, really working very, very hard to try and understand how, what, the, what, what kind of imagery was coming off the battlefield, uh, what the kinds of source material that was appearing and how I, was, how I could make sense of that in the context of 
what I'd written, uh, what I'd written, what we had written in terms of uh, radical war. And I think it's fair to say, and this is why it's very nice to come back. Um, you know, we are, I, we had spent a lot of time trying to work out how wrong we were. And I hope that what we are going to say, what we're going to agree on today, I think is, is that yes, there are things that might be overstated, but there's a whole heap of other things that are really understated in radical war I, I think the title is gonna it, the title is definitely a provocation on our part you know it it's about trying to get people to think about war as a sort of not just a, a kinetic thing but as a informational thing and how they come together in one domain and so i realize that warfighters at the moment are talking about multiple multi-domains and having to manage life across multiple domains uh, but for us that's not how we experience war. We experience war through one domain, and typically, that's the smartphone that we're, or the cell phone that we is, is ubiquitous and is everywhere and is shaping both how we are engaging with the war, whether we're on the front lines or whether we're on the tube in London. And uh, I think, and I'll hand over to Andrew now. But I think one of the challenges for us was to try and. Uh, make sense of our book in a context where where connectivity was just ubiquitous and we're, we're not talking just about what the armed forces think about war but we're talking about how armed forces and society think about war uh, and uh, the social structures of connectivity are framing how the armed forces are having to work it's not that the armed forces are necessarily able to dictate everything in the information space far from it or that this information space is disconnected from the analog world. It's actually that they are enfolded and interrelated in a way that, you know, it, it just the it creates all sorts of challenges for in terms of how we understand and how we think about war uh, and how this war has actually uh, been prosecuted because that that the, the the blurring of private and public, the blurring of analog and digital, seem almost you know like it's just ordinary you know it's a it's an everyday rather than something that we needed to and i think that's what we were trying to get at in radical war really andrew yes um just to echo matthew's thanks ian for inviting us back we're delighted to be back i think one of the big questions is um you know how and when do we make sense of war and i i think that's you know really really difficult question if you think about our field roughly of the relationship between war and media. You think about kind of a number of contemporary wars. Uh, after the 1991 Gulf War, you know, in about 93, 94, you had this loads of books coming out, you know, talking about this new relationship between war and media. And then 2004, 2005, you had a lot published around the Iraq War and the relationship between war and media and journalism and audiences and effects and all of that. But with this war, you know, and this is why I think our book is quite remarkable in some senses. It's really, really difficult to, to kind of make sense of the complexity of the relationship between digital, social media, military, war and perception. You know, I, I, I think to render that intelligible, I think is a real challenge. So I think that we had some kind of model that seems to hold up, we think, around the idea of ecologies ecologies the war ecology and you know and I, I i think to go back to that question well how do you make sense of this war I'm, I'm one of the one of the remarkable things for me 
is the role of Telegram. War is produced locally on Telegram and distributed by participants in a new way. And we said that in the book. We didn't really talk about Telegram in the book, but we talked about participants, you know, all the different users, militaries, civilians, people on the ground, NGOs, um, all participating, as Matthew says, through their pervasive use of smartphones. So in some ways, you've got this kind of splintering, I guess, of ecologies. But the, the problem that I think one of the most remarkable things about this year in terms of making sense of all that is how little is actually being written and said about Telegram. So if you accept, you know, that we're saying, well, actually, you know, that a lot of the wars being fought out on, on Telegram um, as the most kind of used platform by Ukrainians and Russians, then why aren't we seeing it in the news? You know, where is it? Where's all the academics going? Look at Telegram this, look at Telegram that. Well, you know, where is it? And and I, I think I think the answer to that question is because it's really difficult to understand because a lot of it's in Russian Ukrainian. So unless you're an expert in the language and the culture, but it seems that, um, you know, a lot of the coverage, a lot of the mainstream media coverage seems to miss where the real war is, you know? And and the real war, a lot of the real war and representations of it is actually, and someone just said, you know, it's mentioned a scholar curating stuff on Telegram. I'm not saying there's no one, you know, working on Telegram. I'm just saying that it seems to evade kind of mainstream media cultures. And, you know, I, so I guess to answer one of your questions, what surprised me, uh, surprised us about, about the war, is the ways in which the participants that we talk about in our book have exploited it, appropriated it, um, adapted it. And the comment from the, the person on the chat that said about it's a treasure trove of images, and that's exactly what it is. So to come back to what I was saying at the beginning, if Matthew just let me carry on for a little bit longer, that, um, you know, we, we kind of got analysis of war two years, three years after 1991, you know, two years, three years after 2003, name the war, name the kind of lag in kind of analysis and description and understanding. But most wars are like that. You know, most wars, we see the images of wars and consequences of wars and suffering and videos um, years later, and often not at all, just just not at all. And most wars are not, as you said at the beginning, highly mediated in this way, um, Ian. But, you know, this is the most documented war in history, as we said when we last spoke with you, and and that fact I think is extraordinary, because it hasn't it hasn't led to any greater real understanding or comprehension of what's going on in this war. In some ways, it's the opposite. So normally, you know, images and videos and content, if you like, about war comes out ten years later, twenty years later. Think about the World Wars, you know, and the Holocaust. Think about our images and understanding of them. Um, some of those, especially graphic and the, the reality of the consequences of war come out years and years and years later. <laughs> There's no gap here. It's all there. I can go on to, I can go onto my computer now that I'm on with you now and I can watch it. Um, so where is that? Where is the reality of war? Where is it? And Matthews and I book, you know, talked about it in exactly that way in terms of the splintering of, you know, of war ecologies. That in some ways we are massively globally connected by the smartphone, yet at the same time, you know, our realities and understandings and engagement of war 
is separate and, and, and splintered and, and we consume it in, in very, very, very narrow ways. So that's a real conundrum and paradox that I think, you know, radical war was trying to get at. Yeah, there are other things in radical war that we've been that we posed right at the beginning around the idea, and uh, at least one of my war studies. I mean, one of the challenges to, is to bring war studies and media studies into relief with each other, to, to dis, into discussion with each other. Right? There, there's no war without its representation. Right? You know, you've got to try and make sense of that in a. You know, all of the OSINT stuff that's going on, they're, they're either using social media or using other, you know, um, different platforms to gather up information and then promulgate it through social media. So it's either, either, and then they're using social media to check, to establish whether what they're seeing on the um, image intelligence or the sat satellite imagery or whatever else that they're, the harms data, whatever else they're, they're using, they're then running it back through and double checking uh, through social media. So social media is a is a, a lens, but it's also a very distorting lens. Uh, and that presents us with challenges from a war studies and media studies perspective, partly because it's so immediate. Uh, and also there's a question, right? The open source intelligence people are the ones that help us in some many respects understand what's going on in the campaigns unless you're unless you've got access to classified material and even then you know it's compartmentalized or or you're seeing pictures of it that's a couple of days old or you know and and of course many of the cases uh people in uniform much prefer open source stuff because then at least they can use it cite it it becomes more useful from an everyday uh uh point of view um but uh the the open source stuff uh, is is how uh, we understand the world, but you know all of these things that, that in many respects these are, these are sensors, right? You know these are the things that allow us to immediately photograph, geolocate, uh, place in time and space a particular image, uh, and uh, of course that extends. And so one of the provocations here I we put in radical war was the idea that actually the smartphone was a weapon. And of course, uh, you know, people in war studies side of side of things go, what, what are you talking about? It can't be, it's not a bloody weapon. You know, it's a, a rifle's a weapon, a tank's a weapon. How can you call a phone a weapon? And, I, you know, of course, I mean, I've written a whole book on small arms innovation. So, yeah, I, you know, it's, it was obviously a provocation. It was obviously a provocation. But at the same time, it, what what was really shocking was in the first two or so, three weeks, were, were the fact that the apps were being had been built and sent out to allow people to ordinary civilians to tag Russian columns and geolocate and photograph and then upload that stuff to Ukrainian fusion cells. Uh, and then they became part of a resilient kill chain, right? And suddenly we're like, okay, uh, now we're not just talking about, now we're not just talking about how war is represented in terms of how we might make sense and understand, but actually people, and, and in, they are, people are participating in that respect, whether they're on the front lines or on the other side of the world, amplifying or creating content, but they're also creating content actually right there. They're taking a picture of a, a moving column and then they're uploading it and sending it off to a fusion, an intelligence center somewhere. And what has really shocked me, I think, is firstly that this stuff was out there, right? And so, uh, you know, you could, you could download the app and put in data that would uh, help Ukrainians pinpoint Russians the second stop was that Russians were shooting people for using their smartphones. You're like, okay, well, now we've got a really interesting feedback loop that is, you know, seriously a massive, massive challenge to how we might think about the wars of armed laws of armed conflict, 
uh, about combatant status, about war crimes, about all sorts of other things. You know, the smartphone becomes a, a point in that uh, in, in the loop around uh, the kill chain. And then, you know, I watched on the BBC at the beginning of the year and there were news stories uh, breaking in mainstream media uh, in December or so, November, December, about how you know, the, the journalists are being invited into the uh, intelligence fusion cells, the innovation cells that are in Ukraine, and they're filming it. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, so I was thinking, right, at some point, someone's going to let me go and do some research. I'm going to go and see the Ukrainian army. They're going to be nice. They, you know, going to have a good time. I'm hopefully not going to get into trouble. And uh, people are going to look after me. And then there they are. I don't even have to do that because they're just putting it up on mainstream media. And there they are. There's a There's the woman that's talking to the civilian because they've called it in or they've sent an image in or they, you know, is the Russian still there or is the Russian not there anymore? And then they've geolocated and tagged it and they put it all on on the telly. And I'm like, whoa, that's just remarkable. It just really blew my mind. And so when I said the smartphone as weapon, when we said the smartphone as weapon and, and my war studies colleagues looked at me like, you're mad. I'm like, hold on a minute. I don't, I'm not feeling mad at all now, right? <laughs> to be honest, it feels absolutely part of the kill chain. And that's so suddenly it's not just representation, it's weapons, you know, it's it's war, you know, it's kinetic. Great. Well, uh, this as you guys have been talking, um, we've got some great questions coming in and they 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 tie back to uh, some of the points you just had. So I'm just going to start weaving those in here into the, the discussion. But so, uh, you know, you talked about the war ecology. Right. And so one of the, the questions here is aside from the uh, I'm trying to get the word right here. Yeah, the you know, the fragmentation of people in different different parts of that ecology, especially like sort of if there's a war ecology, there's an information ecology and and ecosystems within that. So, and so the question here is that th this is not, I think, made the, the English speaking media all that much. But uh, the questioner points out that in non English speaking and in different parts of the globe, there are different media ecologies at play and that uh, uh, a lot of the narratives going into those non English media ecologies in different like South America or Africa, I think, is a place where this is quite prevalent, mm. uh, tend to be either ambivalent about what is going on, you know, who's in the right, who's not, or or more directly, you know, supportive of uh, the Russian position. So uh, I'm assuming you, you, you gentlemen have probably seen some of this or studied some of it. So, you know, what's your perspectives on this? And is there a anything that can be done to counter these narratives or, or have we sort of unintentionally seeded those spaces? One thing that really was fascinating early on in about April or May last year, someone had done some crunching. Um, I know the team who were involved in doing it um, and done some crunching just to see who the social media influences were influences were and how they were working uh, geographic in, in terms of uh, geography. And it was pretty clear that uh, Western mainstream social media was being owned by um, the Ukraine from a Ukrainian information it was in a Ukra Ukrainian information space basically, um, and but they were having they were having no pull through into or not not as much pull through into the social media space in South America, in Africa and South Africa, in India, uh, um, you know clearly not in China. Some of that is splinternet related. Some of that's Great Firewall of China related. Some of that's you know language related, but also. It seems that uh, there's a there's a, a a degree of campaign, you know, social media campaign going on from the Russian side of things, which is about shaping the information space outside of the outside of the West, and that's clearly complicating, clearly complicating international politics when it comes to managing the relationship between the world at large and Russia 
uh, and sanctions and all this other stuff. I mean, it's it's that 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 grain and energy can be used as a weapon by the Russians in order to shape politics in other parts of the world, the Middle East, in North Africa, whatever, is 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 helpful for the Russians in terms of also then giving them some hooks for pushing on their narratives. What I do know is that um, from having been to a couple of conferences uh, subsequently, that uh, the Ukrainian information campaign uh, certainly at the beginning was really challenged by not knowing how many how many bombs were going to land over Kiev and whether they have an office. And so, you know, moving virtually, having to work out work 18 hours a day, having to build campaigns on the fly, you know, um, uh, only having you know what 20 or so people to you know drive the stand with Ukraine uh, uh, hashtag. All of that um, constrains the capacity to get messages out there. But I know subsequently at the same time that a number of outreach efforts have been put in place, partly by the US State Department, part, partly by other embassies around the world to try and open up a forum for discussions about the war in Ukraine that then are trying to seed the possibility locally and influence the local mainstream media uh, and, and maybe even get to a point where you can bring influences into those discussions and influence uh, local uh, um, local social media conversations that are about trying to promote uh, uh, re-engagement with Ukraine rather than just automatically assuming that a Russian Russian media messages are the right ones to take. So I, you know, there are there are things going on at a sort of PR level, at a, um, a, a government level to try and shape narrative. I do wonder. I suppose the the question in radical war terms is the extent to which how how manipulable is all of this in the context of of uh, billions of users who are engaging and participating and have their own perspectives framings and uh, ways of uh, thinking about the war given what andrew is talking in terms of talking about in terms of a splintering of realities how do you get how do you manage some of those narratives in this context where social media is a distorting prism full stop it's designed as a distorting prism principally because it aids marketers uh, who want you to buy things or uh, has a different set of policies or structures that shape the way conversations happen uh, and the openness in which conversations uh, happen as well. I mean, I, would, I will add that, you know, in the book, we do write about different ecologies. You know, we obviously talk about Myanmar and how different social media platforms and networks, excuse me, are used in different ways in very different parts of the world. So, you know, we can't assume that there's some kind of blanket um, understanding and use or abuse of a particular technology or particular platform in a particular country. They're all very, very different, introduced at different times, they're very different cultures. And, and so, and so, you know, we often talk about this kind of globalized social media world and it's nothing like that at all. And that's, I think, the, the great point about, one of the great points about our book. I mean, what I will say, is that in terms of the adaptation and exploitation of social media over time, you know, the Russian information war started off, it was rubbish. It was basically an old man on TV. You know, it was, it wasn't much more than that. It really wasn't. It, you know, you can talk, there's lots of stuff being written about how, you know, Russians were doing cyber war this, cyber war that, and, and actually um, they weren't very good. And you can tell they weren't very good because of the response by Russian civil society 
the adapted and exploited telegram. So, you know, what you've got now is um, several hundred Russian channels on telegram that have filled the vacuum that were left by the traditional state run influence mainstream media. And these, you know, these are bloggers, they're independent reporters, they're, they are, the, of course, some minist Russian Ministry of Defense accredited reporters, established and well known journalists, people from the front line. Um, you know, there's several hundred, several hundred of these channels now, Russian channels on, on Telegram. And they're not all, they're not all completely, you know, mad disinformation pro-Russian. You know, some of them are you know, somewhere in the middle, much more critical of what the Western state are doing. But what that tells you, what that emergent exploitation of, of Telegram tells you by Russian civil society is a response to a recognition of just how rubbish Russian information warfare was, especially in comparison with Ukraine's. So actually, one of my the notes I had down here was exploring the Telegram piece a little bit more because, uh, you know, I'll, I'll confess before the war started, never heard of Telegram. Right. And then we had I think we had um, a number of folks to include, you know, Dr. Weber on our, our separate program, you know, sort of filling in the the background of, yes, it's it's become a it's a very popular, widely used application, especially for Russian Ukrainians. But one of the sort of as you just mentioned, one of the themes has been the Telegram channels have turned into uh, places where some of the most critical commentary from Russians about Russian performance in the war have come. Mm -hmm. And um, one of our sort of enduring segments on the program with Yuval is like, you know, what is what what bonkers stuff is like Russian state media saying on any <laughs> given day? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the, you know, mm -hmm. from from saying it'd be OK if they all got nuked because they were going to go to heaven because this is a holy war to uh there there was a recent one where uh one of their regular anchors was like on camera yelling at his his technical staff because they hadn't set up like the background properly but it, it it's bizarre and bonkers um and i don't really know how to describe it but there's been a there's a definite tension like the most critical parts of russian military performance are coming from these telegram channels so if maybe you could both of you could expand on why or how have these critical telegram channels been allowed to continue because it's not mm -hmm. like you know, Putin's ever been shy about cutting off access or or forcing media folks out in the cold, you know, if if they annoy him. Um, mm -hmm. But also, what you know, the I think the perception before the war and as uh, our guest here um, calling in from Istanbul, and, uh, you know, again, great to have uh, folks from around the globe in here. You know, be made a point in the chat here that Russia <clears throat> ran a, a pretty effective information uh, campaign via Turkish media that directly led to the acquisition of Russian air defense, right? So that's an effective informational campaign. What happened, like where they, you know, they used to be, Russia is seen as extremely effective, even superior in this realm. Mm -hmm. And it, it's changed or it's collapsed or however you want to call it, but it's not nearly as good as we all sort of perceived it to be. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I guess there was an assumption that the, I, I don't know who was assuming the effect, the effectiveness of Russian information war. I mean, that was kind of a myth anyway, really. Perhaps they kind of fell, fell for it in effect to some extent themselves. But Telegram, I mean, they did, Russia did try and shut it down actually a few years ago. So it was actually kind of banned for a while. But the, the reason it continues, the reason the Ukrainians and the Russians still let Telegram continue is because it serves both their interests. And it's a very, very simple platform to use. It's very accessible. It's not, 
you know, it's a few algorithms on it, but it's not really algorithmically driven. So in terms of anyone can set up a channel, I can set up a channel today, tomorrow. So in some ways, you know, when I talk to colleagues and friends in Ukraine uh, on WhatsApp, they say, oh, don't use WhatsApp, use use Telegram. Because so that's the kind of default go to communication tool in Russia. And, you know, in I, I don't know, it's about um, 80 percent of Ukrainians use it. Um, at least a third of Russians use it, something like that. I think those numbers have gone up. They're probably a bit out of date. But um, it's so it's it's what what you it, it's. What's happened is that all those people who were on multiple different platforms before, including those in mainstream media and on all other kinds of messaging platforms, um, migrated to Telegram because it's just so simple to use and everyone else was on it. So it's kind of like sucked everybody in. And those people, those individuals who were not really commenting about the war or would you would not be seen as, you know, typically people who would um, get involved in military, in, in the politics or the the military um all kind of turned you know so in in ukraine you've got lots of bloggers young bloggers who used to um blog about literature and poetry you know you're very young people blogging about normal stuff the war comes along and people migrate to telegram and it becomes this new battleground um it's a very very curious platform in some ways um and i think i think we we the west don't really understand it because we have this debate all the time about how to moderate how to regulate how to um censor social media platforms to protect for good reasons you know to push away hate speech to protect young children from abuse and all the good reasons. And we have those debates all the time, you know, at Facebook and just China and TikTok and all of this. But actually, you know, while we're over here having these debates, the world is burning on Telegram. You know, it's astonishing. It's a, it's a I, I still, you know, Matthew and I have these talks all the time and I and I say to him, I still can't get my head round, you know, what why there's this it it's it's it, maybe it's what I said at the beginning, maybe it is about language and culture and you know it, it's something that is much more resistant to people in the who's you know whose first language is traditionally english uh english academics maybe it is a bit a bit more resistant to to their kind of analyses and comparisons but it, it, it seems to be very invisible in a lot of kind of western westernized coverage of what's going on but it seems to be um, the go-to place for many Ukrainians and many Russians to either engage with this war or to understand what's going on in this war. And that includes absolutely families, parents, relations of those who are captured, killed and wounded in this war. And, you know, and from the very beginning, and again, you know, it's Ukrainians leading here, Ukrainian information officer, I might have office might mention this when we last spoke you know at the very beginning um they set up their 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 look for your own channel didn't they right at the very beginning of the war look for your own channel and this channel set up by the ukrainian um, information ministry showed images of um wounded and dead uh, presumably mostly russian soldiers um basically saying to russians you know russian parents russian mothers Russian families, you know, we've got, you know, we've got, look at this, look at this. 
And a lot of those images and photographs and videos had them holding up passports. You know, again, you know, this what's extraordinarily unusual about this war is how the combatants have been identified by both sides. And of course, the Russians then followed with copy copycat channels, you know, again, you know, exploiting, you know, and for me, well, not just for me, you don't need to be me to, to see this, you know, much of much of those channels um, are, are kind of breaches, you know, of the Geneva Convention, if not other rules of rules of, of war and law, um, international humanitarian law. Um, and it's just shocking, you know, so I'm not I'm not saying I'm pro-Ukrainian, pro-Russian here. I'm just saying both sides, you know, it, it's there. It's there to be seen. Um, and I've, you know, I've written about it in an article called The War Feed. You know, this this stuff's in your feed if you want to see it, yeah? But most normal people, you know, why, you know, don't want to see it. So again, Matthew and I, you know, in Radical War, talk about this splintering of perception, you know, this, this radically separating, radically separating of, of ecologies of perception and engagement with war. And, and that seems to me to have become, you know, even more ingrained, even more, um, you know, these ecologies seem even more kind of separated up in terms of perception and, and engagement with war. And, you know, and, and uh, uh, one more point, and then I'll, I'll shut up, Matthew, sorry. Um, you know, one thing that can can be said about this war is that in the UK terms, at least, which obviously Matthew and I are familiar with, and after a month, interest just, news audience interest just dropped off a cliff. Okay. So again, another paradox of radical war is this, this sense you've got the most documented war in history, and I I challenge anyone to argue with me about that point. This is the most documented war in history, and we've got we can give you facts and figures and stats and boy with those if you like. Um, and yet, it's not engaging audiences in in you know for many other reasons. For many reasons, of course, not just about um, overload. But the paradox is, it's the most in some ways the most available stuff of actual images and videos and messages from the battlefield in real time all of the time uh, um, and yet you know it seems very um ignored and very forgotten already i suppose that one question that you might want to ask is is, is why is that and why does stuff why is why is how there, there's a practical question about how stuff like that ends up on western mainstream social media you know where does it how does it why that particular image or why and so this is when it becomes really important and that's what i spent a lot of time doing in the first before the podcast we did a year a year ago it becomes really important checking on the provenance of the sources that you're looking at you know and understanding what is headcam footage what's webcam footage what's smartphone footage what's mainstream media footage what's what what platform is it originated on and uh, and is it edited? How is it edited? Who's involved in the editing? And you can start to, you know, one of the things that was really intriguing was the speed at which different inf different source materials would emerge online. So, you know, some material would get held back, and then you go, well, there's an inf that that implies there's someone in actually managing the media space, right? And the Ukrainians pretty quickly became clear that the Ukrainians were holding that stuff back. And that gave their own media teams, information ops people to opportunity to try and shape messages 
and then convey the stories that they wanted. And in the in the melange and mess of the kickabout of social media and mainstream media and what messages would appear in what different war ecologies, what different information spaces, that you know, create try to create some leverage and some space. And you can see that that manipulation was going on. So, you know, if you wait 48 hours for a tank or an image of a tank to be pulled off the battlefield, who's involved in that? And you have to think about that question, I think. Um, the other thing to think about is, is where does what platforms are these images turning up on and where and why? So, you know, a lot of materials are on Telegram, but then how does it get off Telegram and end up somewhere else? Now, some of that's just easy. Someone's ripped the image, put it on a recontextualized it, shoved it on social, mainstream social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Right. Um, <clears throat> but what happens when things are really complicated? So to picking up Andrew's point about identifying a Russian soldier with the passport and taking a picture and shoving it on Telegram. You know, I was getting images on my, I was getting video feed on my social media, on my Twitter uh, uh, um, um, timeline. An anonymous account had posted a video of a Ukrainian calling a Russian mum to tell her that the, her child had been killed in, in Ukraine. And you know, OK, so I don't speak Ukrainian or Russian. I didn't know what's going on. You know, ha ha I happen to know um, Ian Garner. I gave him a call, you know, and he said, oh, it's as, it is, I asked him, is this as gruesome as it, it looks? He said, yes, it is gruesome. You know, it's pretty nasty stuff. And I was like, OK, right. Well, OK, first off, we know the, the content. It could be staged, but we know that there's something in the language, in the content. Or the then I ask another friend to tag the metadata and where is it? Where does it come from? And you know, initially the the feedback was is it had come from Russia. It hadn't come from Ukraine. It came from Russia. It came from Russia, gone through China, and ended up in India. Got picked up on a Reddit board in India, then got posted anonymously, tagged to me. And I'm like, okay, so now the question is, why am I getting tagged, right? What is it that says that I have some particular reason to get targeted here in this great big mess that is social media? And there are millions of posts coming out and lots of different, you know, and, you, you know, you, um, you, it, I was lucky. I know a couple of people who firstly speak Russian Ukrainian, and then I know someone who's prepared to do some legwork just to do some tracing metadata across multiple platforms. But most people, most majority of people are neither interested nor have the skills nor the time to do any of that, to just double check before they hit the repost on their social media uh, 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 feed. And that is precisely where you get this accelerating and decelerating discourses that become really problematic. And you get this, you know, uh, Telegram, I think is probably very useful in that, it, you know, there's a sort of, it's a linear kind of way of engaging with the feed, right? But if you're on any other social media feed, you kind of get there's a asynchronicity of it associated with it. You think things drop in and drop out. You don't know the, the logical sequence or the causal sequence of events. And so, you know, the result is, is that you, people become, to go back to what Andrew's saying, there's a sort of disengagement. You know, you know how do I make sense of this? Because I can't see, you know, and I, the people become skeptical. And I remember early on in the war um, running a, a, um, a, 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 an event at my old university, Sussex University, to uh, encourage a, a student open date and they brought their parents along and I asked their, their, them all in this workshop, you know, how do they get their, how do they get their news? And, you know, the kids are on TikTok or they're on, um, some of them are rarely on the old farts platform, Twitter, 
but you know they're, they're you know if they're really unlucky they're on facebook but they're not they might be on insta they're, they're definitely using snapchat they're using whatsapp they're all this other stuff but their parents you know they're maybe on facebook right and they might be on twitter and then they're then they're reading then then they're watching the cnn's and the bbc's and the al jazeera's and the rest of it their their grandparents the kids grandparents they're reading um mainstream media as broad street uh, broad as as um, you know, I'm trying to say is newspapers, right? As physical newspapers, right? That's where they get their 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 news feeds from, right? Their war feed. And in this kind of one of the challenges here is to sort of try and pull apart these different layers of the new war ecology or new war ecologies. Because one of the things that we, you know, that one of the things that we were making the point in radical war is, is there's not just one war ecology. There are multiple. They reflect the information infrastructures that are in different geographies. But they also reflect the different media cultures that exist in the and the historical trajectories of those media cultures in those particular parts of the world. You know, uh, if you're in um, uh, various parts of Africa, you don't need uh, you're not using a fixed line telecommunications platform. You're using cell phones and 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 you know that complete. You know, you're you're even using your your smartphone to shift money about the place, and you're using your smartphone to pay for things. And of course. That you know that that the smartphone becomes a centre of the, the the kind of ecologies around which you experience and engage the world, but you know what, you've got to map that in against different generations, different demographic profiles, different link, uh, part, geographical spaces, different parts of the world using infrastructure in a different way, and I think that has definitely from just watching the war in Ukraine. And I went to a really interesting workshop the other day where we were talking about, where we were listening to people talking about the new war ecologies in different parts of the world, you know, Mali, in Somalia, uh, uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, how digitization is affecting conflict and war and framing how people engage with the war in those locations. And what it seems to me is, is that when you look at Ukraine, everything's accelerated and amplified and it's like, bam, it's like, it's straight there, you know, and uh, the cacophony that it creates, uh, it, you know, we, even now that the Ukrainian government has moved up into the cloud to access um, Ukrainian government services, what do you, the choices are on your when it comes to your uh, um, electricity is to turn the light on, to do to put some food, to heat up some food, or to power up your phone, right? You know, it it, it kind of it, it, your your world is starting to shift because that connectivity is just there and it, it, you need it and that's how you remain engaged and even able to pay or access services that your your life otherwise depends on because you know you know what we that's how everyone lives it's not just and and in that respect i suppose the one thing that the regular comment that i would get before radical war came on was is that you know connectivity that's not something that is not ubiquitous that's not no ubiquitous and they people could not be further you know people's mental maps of how connected the world is is like something stuck around 2000 or something because literally everywhere is connected and anyone who thinks it's not connected well those parts of the world you don't actually want to be connected to because they're up a mountain or in a swamp or they're in a part of the world and 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 go get this if you're not connected to the grid, you're still influenced by it, whether you like it or not, right? Because all the journalists are connected to the grid and all the news, the mainstream news people are connected to the grid. 
And if, like Osama bin Laden, you think you can get away with being off the grid, well, go figure. Americans figure out that you're off the grid and then you get it anyway. So, you know, it, there's no chance that you can get off the grid because life is basically lived through this digital experience. You know, it's not an analog digital thing. They are totally enfolded in and of each other. And that's why when, you know, warfighters talk about domains, I understand that we understand that that's about trying to organize different parts of the military in order to orchestrate fires, maneuver, logistics, engage different bits of the cyber capabilities. But that's not how the rest of the world lives. You know, the rest of the world does not live through domains. It lives, it lives through its smartphone. Uh, and I think that's, 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 um, that's kind of the thing that, uh, you know, really strikes home when it comes to thinking about radical war uh, and the war in Ukraine. Um, it's, it, you know, people are not switching the web off. They are definitely not switching. You know, why don't we just switch it off? Well, I'll tell you why, because life depends on the web. <laughs> if you, you need to have it, you know, you're you're actively engaged with it and you can't avoid it. And that goes for the armed forces that are relying on Elon Musk. And it goes for um, it goes for uh, um, the civilians who are using the um, uh, Elon Musk's um, uh, uh, the sky, the, the low orbital satellites to to get on, on online and talk to their families in other parts of the country, in other parts of the world. It's useful for targeting and for actually for engaging in war fighting, just like it is for everyone to communicate. It's just part of the everyday fabric of what war is. Yeah, and I uh, I have a, a note here to myself about exactly that elon musk and starlink we'll see if, if i got time to get back to it um but i want to go to go back to something that andrew said there in terms of you know things that from again from a you know maybe a, a western military governmental perspective bleed over across laws of armed conflict and and aspects like the geneva convention you know and you mentioned one in terms of the, you know the phone call to the russian mother right saying hey here's a picture of your son in his passport where he's died the Geneva Convention has some fairly specific things to say about, you know, the photography of of casualties or prisoners of war. But so that in mind um, in the chat here, uh, a couple questions that are sort of tied together that I want to go into that not so much in the combatants now, but in terms of the overall participants, you know, that you've both mentioned. First part of this is that there seems to be a in, in the West, um, especially maybe not especially, but as opposed to a what is socially acceptable? in terms of discussing and viewing on our social media channels in comparison to wars in Iraq, Iran, Syria, where like you would blur stuff out or like you don't want to share it, right? Because you're doing you're doing mm -hmm. ISIS's work for you by sharing the horrible things that they're posting out there. And he mentions that, you know, first first point is that it now seems to be socially acceptable, at least in the digital realm, to, you know, to repost these things and sometimes, you know, joke about it or um, make offhanded comments. Um, he goes on to tie into, you know, it's another turret throwing contest competitor, right? You know, early, early days in the war, there were a lot of very um, uh, proliferated and high resolution images of Russian tank turrets flying off because the way their auto loader is configured, you hit that mm -hmm. and set off the ammunition to blows turret out the tank, right? And that turned into sort of, like it says, a, a, a competition or a contest. Um, and then there's uh, you know, I see pretty regularly images of the UAS's, you know, dropping ordnance, not sometimes on tanks, but also on top of, of Russian positions that they obviously don't know it's there. And some of the comments like, oh, you know, after all this time, they still haven't figured out how to sort of do, you know, camouflage concealment from the air, you know, a bunch of dummies. And you're sort of like, OK, from a tactical perspective, maybe that's true. But 
you also just watch, you know, some person or a group of people get like fragged, right, in real time. Why do you think this this social, you know, what's become acceptable has shifted in this specific conflict when we're not that far removed, you know, from from ISIS, for example. And then what does it say? I guess what does it say about us in terms of our consumption and and direct participation in it? Uh, Is there a coping mechanism at work or is perhaps there's, you know, we're not psychologists here, but is there maybe some other, I don't know, a, a, a mental or social contagion that makes people not just actively seek this stuff, but, you know, comment and joke about it? I think it's a really good question. And I think you need to distinguish between where you see it. So we still have a mainstream media, roughly, including mainstream social media to some extent. But most of that, if you think about events that have captured the kind of global imagination, um, the massacre at Butcher, okay, Western mainstream media showed, you know, covered over bodies, um, you know, maybe a few bits of blood, nothing, nothing really you know, have a terrible and awful and shocking the incident was, the massacre was, you know, it was pretty highly sanitized, highly censored footage because most television audiences in the West just don't want to see that. Um, you know, the the realities, the the blooded realities and abuse of war. Um, and that stuff will never, you know, virtually never be shown on Western television. There's something about Western mainstream media that is still really highly censored, highly sanitized. And let me give you an example of that extreme sensitivity, you know, to, to anything that's that's not, I mean, television in particular. So, you know, a few years ago, if you remember the Super Bowl, was it uh, Janet Jackson's nipple was exposed live on primetime American television? America went mad. This is awful. Look, this, our children saw this. This is outrageous. Um, so it's not about what is being seen, it's about where it's being seen and expectations about where it's being seen. So there are still, you know, certain parts of mainstream media which will never show, will never ever show the, the horrific realities of warfare. Because if they did, they would lose their audiences. News is a business ultimately. We talk about, the, you know, they are splintered realities. So your question, Ian, is, you know, well, what about those people who do watch this kind of stuff? And well, okay, that, you know, I, I guess, you know, you might argue that there's some inuring, there's some kind of getting used to images of abuse. And, um, but I, I, you know, I, I still, I still think there's a, 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 a mainstream sensitivity, you know, amongst certain audiences. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Most of us do not want to see images of human abuse and suffering and death. Of course, we'd be mad if we wanted to see that. But the extent to which, though, that kind of penetrates and it filters into our social media feeds is a different question. And whether that's having some effect, I, I'm not sure. But um, certainly what you can say is that, you know, the stuff that's on Telegram is, you know, we'll just break every regulation and rule that has ever been invented about media representation of conflict or of abuse. You know, it's it that's absolutely can be said. Um, and yes, of course, on many of these channels, you've got um, individuals celebrating and cheering and putting emojis, clapping, you know, uh, applauding death and applauding abuse. And, but that is something else. That's psychological war. This, you know, so there's psychological war on Telegram. Absolutely. And then over here, you've got a very highly sanitized representation 
or bits of that that might enter into some social media platforms you know that yeah, okay and you know when you see it on twitter you know it's it's you see a tweet and it says content censored in the image below you know so you know there's number of there are still many 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 filters so we have this you know impression that the world is open that social media gives us this panacea we we're watching the reality of war all the time in real time and we are if we want to but most people are not most people are not they don't want to see that and why should they um and so again we've got this paradox and that's radical war we've got the most documented evidence-based stream of images and video and test me and and the horrors of war that we've never ever experienced in real time and never experienced in this quantity of volume ever ever you compare to all the wars in history before this you know these are grand claims you know but they hold up and yet and yet and this comes to one of the questions in the chat you know our perception of war is still completely guided with the kinds of how we filter our digital feeds you know what we subscribe to and what we don't and so th this extraordinary paradox is split between this astonishing volume of stuff and our capacity to to render it intelligible or to seek it out or rather not to seek it out and I, you know our mental models are kind of <clears throat> i think that's why i suppose one of the one of the reasons why we called it radical war <clears throat> is because there's a in our minds, we need to have a, a, a real break with framings that are pre-digital, that sort of seeped into the digital and continue to sort of shape how we think about things in a digital. When, you know, <clears throat> I know we, I, we might even go so far as to say this, this is post-digital, you know, this is just this is just how the world is, right? Um, and uh, that demands uh, a framing that allows us to engage with those those practical realities where you know as i said there are older people still reading the newspaper physically reading a newspaper a paper newspaper there are other um demographics where they're watching the telly and maybe on facebook and there are another bunch of people who are on all sorts of social media platforms um, and then there are those who are saying, no, I'm not involved in any of this and I don't even have a smartphone. And they think that they're not even on the on, on the grid at all. And of course, they're still engaged with the way the world is in terms of a, it's, it's digital, it's, 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 it's contemporary framing because they can't avoid it. And, you know, I, that goes that I, and I and I'm trying to draw it. I will try to draw it back to war a little bit. That goes also for how we have how our mental models work in relation to kinetic stuff as well. Because the, the 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 digital and the kinetic are immediately and very sometimes very viscerally and sometimes very directly linked. You know, someone's filming something, it's broadcast live somewhere, the outgoing shells uh, on an artillery piece, and you know, you then see on the other end of it some artillery shells being returned fire. Now, what what's the feedback loop between someone broadcasting? and uh the 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 other guys spotting that the the is it that they're watching the telly or is it that they're listening to this uh, the artillery sounds going out the outgoing fire and have lo you know located the the fire on the on the on the on the basis of the artillery sound you know who, how do we know you know they, these feedback loops are all over the place and they're they're kind of and it's really astonishing. You can't, you know, you say, well, most most people in uniform don't really think much in, the, you know, the OSINT is its own space. 
that you know you have to be very wary of and you can see that you know social media more broadly is a, a, a cesspit as one of my intelligence chums would describe you know it's full of all of this stuff that Andrew was talking about that just sort of is there to push your thinking down one line of uh, investigation and you over what you know you really need some kind of uh, AI or some kind of means for scraping the data and then looking at the metadata and then synthesizing that, looking for patterns and identifying, you know, who's driving the debate. And sometimes you might see, uh, you might use that to at least be able to understand where people are on the battlefield. You know, there's companies, there are different companies, Anomaly 6 is the one I'm thinking of that, um, you know, has said that they can take people's smartphones, uh, track everyone individually, de-anonymize the smartphone so that they can see who you are and then they can you know look at your social media feed so they can see what you're seeing see what you're thinking see where you are and if you post an image you can they can see where you know what you're looking at and they can do that in real time okay wow that's you know we have when you connect that up to war fighting capabilities you might say that well that's revolutionizing how we're doing things but there's still this kind of representation challenge Right, where where it's not just a data thing, it's also a context. It's also a human understanding thing. That how do we how do we you know um, if you're not at the center of the eye manipulating everything in some Machiavellian sense of the word you know some homunculus you know how are you trying to how how is the rest of us going to try and make sense of that? I mean, and dare I say, even if you're at the center of things, how are you supposed to make sense of it? Right, you know. Um, what speed is is more important than another? How do you combine all of that? How do you do it all at speed? You know, I, it just um, boggles the mind in my mind. You know that we 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 can make some um, uh, claims about warfighting when we can't think about how we might make sense of the world, given that the vast majority of people are not involved in targeting or not involved in all sorts of other bits and pieces. You know, they they are after all the people that are going to start shaping the politics. And discussions and how they understand and how they we, whether we should you know commit forces to do one thing or whether we should pay more money on defense or all sorts of things so you know we have to pay attention to how narrative construction is working in this in this difficult space even if people somehow feel that they've got the data to have this sort of all-seeing eye which i you know um which is which is what the the big tech companies are, are trying to tell us right you know that's what they want to tell us they want to, they want you to buy um they want you to uh, they want you to uh, believe that they've got a picture on everything and and can see everything and know everything well but you know it, it, that doesn't help people and their own understanding of their particular context and location and space and their their media feed great um so well so speaking of big tech companies um i did want to come back and uh i i know made a note about starlink before but it, this kind of jumps into what you were just talking about in terms of the, you know, a, a, a pre-digital age or this perspective that we can we can isolate certain domains uh, when we sort of really can't, you know. So, you know, obviously the 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 uses of Starlink, you know, a civilian satellite constellation that which has been enabled, you know, broadband internet and enabled communication across large parts of Ukraine, especially that, you know, with other communication infrastructure damage, that's been how they've been able to communicate. But that communication has been not uh it doesn't fit in one one narrow lane right it's been used for you know as far as i know for basic civilian communication you know early warning for incoming russian missile strikes but also to you know coordinate military operations on the ukrainian side because again 
that's the infrastructure they have, right? There, there's stuff locally may have been destroyed, or they may just not have enough of sort of conventional military communications hardware. So Starlink has been the the backup, and you know, obviously, recently the head of Starlink, and then sort of you know, backed up by Elon Musk, noted that there were going to be some constraints put on the usage of that because it was. I may be paraphrasing, you know, but, you know, we don't want to help start World War Three. Do you does this reflect, you know, one? What is the 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 I don't want it's not even dual use. The multi use of Starlink now has been I don't think something we've seen on any previous battlefield. Have we do we understand really what the implications of that asset that anybody can tie into are? do we understand that yet? And also, do you think that that the notion that, you know, we'll we'll try and compartmentalize it for one use case, but we're going to take away from the other you know, it, it's a, it's a big tech company. And obviously like Starlink is, it, this is like unprecedented advanced 21st century technology that a private tech company has put up there. And now it's a, it's a piece of battlefield C2 architecture, but does, does their sort of their public comments, does that indicate that maybe they, they don't even realize that they can't, they can't break it into different domains for how it's used that like, that's simply not an option in, in this day and age. So I, I, first up, I think that, you know, um, it tells us that it, it's, it implies to me that, um, that we are in, very much in a world where splinter nets, things splint, the, the, the platforms, the internet itself, how you might firewall things, great firewall of China. Well, you know, if you put a park a load of satellites, Elon Musk satellites over China and beam, you know, and you find a way of bringing in the the receivers on the other end, you know, how does China control the, well, by jamming the signal, I guess, you know, you, you can see the kind of variety of sets of additional challenges that are presented by having um, different uh, platforms out up in space that are able to uh, help people connect that I think sort of tell us something about how uh, connectivity and people's engagement with the world will work in the future. Cause it, you know, you log onto this network, you get this kind of feed. You log onto that network, you get this other kind of feed. And actually, it's important that you're on the right network because something on some networks you have to say what you like, and on other networks you have to be really careful about what you say. And that's sort of mm -hmm. getting hardwired, as it were, into the into the ecosystem. So that 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 strikes me as being um, one thing. I, I, the other thing is, is it, I I wonder whether governments actually have the capacity to do what Musk has done. You know, it, it seems. Musk has got this great platform out there. You know, um, it's, I wonder if the private sector is leading the way here in a way that I wonder whether the, actually the, the, the public sector could even would even have an interest or would know how to recruit the right kinds of people to be able to put the platform together quickly and then, you know, um, jam the you know, counter cyber Russian cyber activity to try and hack um, their, their, you know, would you have the capability to do that quickly? I don't know. And it's the last point I was going to say was is that it seems to me that there's a whole series of um, pri um, 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 private sector technologies that have just been hacked and reworked for military purposes um, that you know demonstrates a creativity in using um, uh, ubiqu ubiquitous connected technologies for war fighting that are way ahead of and beyond the way um, uh, Western armed forces have been thinking about how uh, they should innovate military tech. So on the one hand, I think there's sort of splinter nets are going to uh, here to stay, and that's going to complicate 
um, narrative management and it's going to complicate how uh, people, um, how governments might may or may not control messages. Um, the, the other end of it is, is, you know, the ubiquity of some of these devices just tells me that, you know, you're using Android software operating system to do your target management acquisition. And, you know, that's just amazing, it seems to me. And doing it without the support of big tech or any of that stuff. Wow. I mean, you know, that's really creative stuff. I mean, certainly the, the military industrial complex has kind of gone rogue, you know, but but still in many cases, you've still got, you know, private individuals and platforms and owners that obviously invest in this stuff and share their technologies, their technologies get appropriated and used for wars, as we've seen with Starlink, and, and then they want to rest it back and all of that. But what's really interesting then is, well, if you look at, I, I think Telegram's kind of a gap, you know, it's... It, it doesn't it doesn't fit the model of um, I'm not saying people aren't making money out of it as a platform, but it doesn't fit the same model that we've come to understand in terms of uh, private technology firms investing in particular forms of technology, which have then been appropriated or sold or used for military as well as civilian use and then blurred the two. So Telegram seems to it's, it's like a gap. There's and perhaps that is why. Perhaps that is why it, it kind of sits outside of our, our, you know, more traditional modes of analysis about the relationship between the Pentagon and big tech and other and obviously military companies in the States and elsewhere. So there's something I think really interesting there uh, about, you know, have we seen the breaking of, if you like, of the military industrial complex, the breaking of the, the social, what then became the social media military complex into something different uh, you know and matthews you know was there talking about kind of the splinter nets and this fragmentation but it seems to me that that telegram kind of defies some of our assumptions about those relationships that we've traditionally understood as producing certain types of tech certain types of weapons certain types of um you know established relationships between military and and private companies all right thank you both uh so we're we're past an hour here and i i could you know honestly continue this discussion probably for another hour not even blink but i do want to make sure we're we're honoring everybody's time so i'll throw out one last question to both you gentlemen and then we'll wrap it up here um so you know we're we're coming up on the one-year mark of the war you know we talked we talked shortly after it started we're talking here I think, you know, the general hope is that this is not extended, you know, significantly for another year, but who knows, right? But, you know, as we get past the one-year mark uh, for however, how much longer it goes on, what are some of the things that either of you are going to be sort of watching most closely in in the, in this, this I want to say it's not just one space, it's multiple spaces, uh, but things, things, themes, trends you'll be watching to sort of see how they develop over over the next year? That is a really good question, and it's not a question I have actually thought through an answer to. Um, I, I think partly because I've been so shocked about what's been going, what, what's actually gone on, and I've been using Radical as a reference point. And I think probably the it's fine having Radical as a um, a point of departure, but I, I I I definitely suspect we need to move beyond Radical fairly quickly. I mean, some of the some of the things that I think uh, um, might be worth thinking through is, is how what we were observing in Ukraine manifests in other parts of the world. 
in terms of um, a, a, the, the technologies, ways of thinking, platforms, all the rest of it, and how that works. Uh, because you know the war is not war is not just Ukraine. War is in a lot of different places, and we kind of got to be attentive to how some of the things that have happened in Ukraine then rework their way back into um, the war ecologies elsewhere. So that is definitely um, a, a question in my mind. I suppose I suppose the other thing is is um, to reflect you know, there are things around um, how Russians and Ukrainians engage with um, their media platforms that uh, they've, what I think I've observed is, is that things have got more channelized, you know, think there on the one hand, there's a lot more um, material out there, and it's very hard to make sense of. And yet, at the same time, if you're very closely watching the types of material sort of gets narrowed to different types of the, the provenance of the images appear in a sort of same kind of way or style and you have to yeah you've got to pay very close attention to the information ecology what's getting switched off what's getting switched on uh and why and under what circumstances you've got to get really close to the feeds uh and i think actually that's what is being you know at the beginning you you, you could take big broad handfuls of stuff because operational security wasn't there necessarily, or people were learning to deal with the new context. And as the war's gone on, people's engagement with the information has changed. And you've got to be even more closely attentive to pick up the nuances, and there are nuances in there. And I think that's that demands even more attention that I think probably is precisely why people, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why people are getting turned off or switch off, because they don't have the time, the energy or the interest in actually paying close attention. And that's what this war is really demanding. Thank you, Ian. Um, thanks again for hosting us. So just very briefly, my question is, will the most documented war in history make any difference at all to the pursuit of the prosecution of war crimes? So we've got the most amazing, astonishing accumulation of millions of images that, as I've said, you know, breach the Geneva Convention and breach, you know, international humanitarian law and, you know, that are absolutely um, unprecedented in their volume and availability. Now, will that lead to the, the pursuit and prosecution of war crimes against those people responsible? Or, or will it increase the probability of that happening happening compared to other wars in history and my answer to that i was obviously speculative is no it won't and you know we we hear about the berkeley protocol we hear about great ngos like eyewitness who are who are you know use developing tech and, and protocols for capturing evidence so that we use in the future mnemonics do fantastic work gathering and collecting millions and millions and millions of records of potential abuse and war crimes and I am very sceptical, however good these groups are, and they're wonderful people, believe me, and I really support their work. But I'm ultimately sceptical that 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 volume, that scale of material will actually make a fundamental difference to the potential and the capacity for the pursuit of, of war crimes or, or other, other breaches of um, uh, human rights and so on and so on in times of war. That's a very interesting point to dwell on, and it's it's kind of sad. But this um, we it, this sort of echoes um, a previous guest we had on last summer, I think. But 
Dr. Joanna Siquiera, who's uh, who does international law specifically, you know, um, some looking at human rights abuses and war crimes. And that was kind of her assessment, too. Like we, we have the laws and we can collect the evidence, but actually, you know, bringing prosecution and bringing, you know, justice in the end for, you know, um, for the, the the many victims out there. Uh, I think she called it I think she called the framework fragile and leaky um and and a couple of other things and it's it's a huge yeah. it's unfortunately a big challenge and it's really uh kind of depressing to think that even with all this evidence you, you know some of the the perpetrators some if not a majority may get to live to the end of their days without having to you know do any uh receive any punishment or atonement for what they've done so um yeah, but uh, I don't know. Maybe I'd like to be optimistic and say maybe the sure the sure volume of data will make a difference. But yeah, I don't know. That's it's one thing to have the evidence, and it's another to actually you know get the people, put them in front of a a court, and mm. prosecute, and then punish, and pay for it, and and resource it, and have the political will to do it. Yeah, and and you know to uh, to the point of people turning out, that's a big challenge. Right? Like all this data, but if people are are tuning it out, what is the interest going to be well, in terms of prosecution? And the data, and to be to be really sharp about it, you know, Clearview AI makes itself available to Ukraine, but not to Russia. So Clearview AI allows you to allows Ukrainians to scan people's faces and then open up their smartphones and then download all that stuff, uh, so you can see where the uh, Russians have been and what they've done and all the rest of it. But the Ukraine, the Russian, they're not providing that technology to the Russians, right? And under those circumstances, at what point, if you're not making that crucial technology available to all sides, then you're not interested in law, as in the in, in laws of laws of armed conflict, at, for as a, as a question about law. You're actually sort of taking sides right at the right at the get go, and I think. You know what you're what you're seeing then is is that, that, that when I said something about spinternets or when we talk we have talked uh, Andrew and I about spinternets or you know that the, the the sort of a big fissure in the in the the technology world and it's and it is a uh, there's a decoupling and that decoupling between Russia and the West between China and the rest you know that is getting embedded in the technologies that we've got all around us. And that is, you know, that is even when we get to international law, we are not going to, you know, what works in terms of prosecutions in the West is going to be completely, it, it's already a political football. It's being politicized. It's going to continue to be politicized. There is no way of escaping. And that, and, and dare I say, even online social media, you know, what are the chances of having an objective war crimes tribunal in a context where everyone has got completely different views about what the, what the what's going on in the in the law in the war rather and uh, and who's committing atrocities and under what circumstances you know it's, it it doesn't bode well at all I don't think for taking um, any of this forwards that's a real I think well, I I definitely agree with Andrew that's a that's a real and fundamental shift mm. uh, and we need to figure out ways of accommodating ourselves to that yeah the uh, you know I think to the you know, the, the framework of how you select a jury pool, right? Like you're supposed to be able to say you can be relatively impartial. How do, how can anybody say that, you know, um, at this point, a year in, and even if you've been sort of a, a more casual consumer? Um, it, it, I mean, the, the, the narratives here are shaping how people fight wars, even when, you know, so troops don't know what the laws are. 
you know there's something online and already it's shaping how people behave when they're in the on the on the battlefield you know it's and they just because someone's put out made out an assertion about what the law of international the laws of armed conflict are whether it's based in any reality or not doesn't matter it's still having effects on how people engage and that's a you know there's what lawyers say and then there's how people are and you know there's it, going to be some reconciling that is going to be very challenging it already is i think well uh certainly something we'll you know we probably won't be revisiting until longer down the road when the you know i don't know if the conflict over but is it a point where you can start talking about the the application of international law and the prosecution of war crimes um yeah some something to be watched and i think uh we share a relatively bleak assessment of how that's going to go. It'd be nice to be proven wrong. So something to watch here in the, not the near term, but down, down the road, definitely. All right. Well, wow. We're, we're almost 90 minutes in here. So I think uh, we'll, we'll try and we'll end it on that note. Not, not always a happy note we ended on, but it's not a happy situation. <laughs> so sometimes we just have to accept it for what it is. So to, uh, to Matthew Ford, and Andrew Hoskins, again, uh, great to have you back. Appreciate you you coordinating from multiple time zones. I, Matthew, I'd forgotten you were in Sweden, but um, <laughs> thanks for jumping in here for a, a second episode. And I uh, look forward to getting this one out. And I think we had a very good discussion here. So uh, to our audience as well, thanks for joining us and sticking with us here. If you stuck with us to the 90 minute mark, Team Krillak is going to be off next week, at least for uh, some travel and some other activities. But we'll be back here in March. I've already got some good stuff lined up for the March schedule of the broadcast so make sure you're following us on all, all of our social media channels since you get the registration information and then uh, we'll also have another down the rabbit hole on the russia ukraine war with dr yuval weber brewing here hopefully out within the next uh week at least talk about the state of the war as we approach again the one year mark so again thank you all very much and uh we'll talk to you later thanks Ian. thanks Ian. thanks for joining us as always we depend on support and feedback from the team crew community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.